0: listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be the first episode of what I'm going to call the Salamander Series. I'm going to run some episodes that are going to have some salamander content. Uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback from people looking for a little bit more diverse uh, topics and whatnot, and I thought doing some interviews with some some people who are really, really well-versed in different aspects of the salamander world would be uh would be very interesting, and uh, what greater person to have on than Mark Mandika of the Amphibian Foundation? If uh, you caught uh, episode uh, seventy six, Mark and I talked a little bit about the Frosted Flatwood Salamander Conservation Project, and he has, uh, or he and his team rather, have successfully bred these in captivity for the first time, and it's it's a first, uh, you know, in the whole world of salamanders. So. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to episode seventy-six, we talked a lot about the master herpetologist class and a lot of the values that continuing education have uh, in the fields of herpetology. Um, that was a great episode. Go back and check that out if you haven't already listened to it, because it's kind of a you know little precursor to tonight's episode. But I, I wanted to give Mark a chance to really walk us through the whole story because this is uh, this was a long time coming, and I wanted to take the time to really give the subject it's 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 you know the, it's full do and proper. So we're going to get into all that. And, uh, of course, beforehand, thanks for the, uh, everyone, nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to, uh, I think it's Emmanuel. Uh, uh, Nice write-up. I appreciate that. Saw the review. Thanks a lot for the support. And, uh, obviously, other ways to support the show. Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, I just started a very, very low tier. It's only a dollar a month. In addition to the other tiers... Uh, just kind of a quick way to say thank you if you want to support the show at a dollar a month you want to just give a little something to say thank you uh, i created that tier for that and of course i've got the most popular tier is the five dollar tier five dollar tier gets you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode which is pretty cool and that's about it uh if you guys haven't already caught on i have actually uh I've, i have a, a merch website up uh, i have some t-shirts and things like that available so if that's something you guys are interested in you want to check out some of the amphibic gear uh, i've got shirts and uh stickers and things like that i'll add the link in the uh in the show description and go check it out you know if you want to uh get into that that's another great way to support the show as well get a little something back for yourself so uh, housekeeping all that out of the way um i know i'm speak, speaking a mile a minute here but uh mark welcome back thanks for uh coming on again with me how you doing today
1: great thanks thanks for having me
0: No, it's my pleasure so the last time we talked i um we, we we discussed a little bit about the frosted salamander excuse me the frosted flatwood salamander project that i know has been a project that's been dear to your heart for a long time and i wanted to really just kind of give you the floor here and walk us through the whole process so i mean i really only have a couple of questions but i want you to answer you know just feel free to just kind of roll with it here uh why don't we just start out for the listeners why don't we start out with just what exactly is a frosted flatwood salamander and what's unique about them in their natural history
1: well yeah that is that is a great question to open up a lot of uh discussion uh flatwood salamander uh, there are, there are two frost, uh, flatwood salamanders, the frosted and the reticulated they were separated out and in, in like two thousand and eight the frosted flatwood salamander is uh an embistema, embistema cingulatum, so it's related to some very charismatic species like the tiger salamander and the marble and the spotted salamanders. I've always had a particular affinity for the Ambystoma salamanders. So they're just so cute and chunky. And, um, you know, they're also very mysterious. And that is certainly the case with the frosted flatwood salamander. Um, you know, they are underground 50 weeks of the year. Um, very difficult to find them uh, in their adult stage, unless your timing is impeccable. Um, they are endemic to the longleaf pine ecosystem, which in and of itself is an endangered uh, ecosystem. There's only 3% remaining of the longleaf pine. And so any any species that is from that ecosystem is, is in trouble. You know, there's a lot of um, very, um, charismatic and enigmatic herps from that region um gopher tortoise gopher frog uh indigo snake eastern diamondback a lot of these great species that um, you know are, are in serious trouble uh, a lot of the reason is because of that longleaf pine ecosystem and the fact that it's been savaged for um uh, you know a couple of centuries <laughs> um So the salamander itself is a beautiful ambistema. It's a black salamander with white or gray frosted reticulations. Um, You know, I'm lucky because I get to see one basically whenever I want to, having the currently the world's only captive population, but we're in the process of changing that uh, right now. Um, and so what's unique about its natural history you know it is an ephemeral wetland breeding salamander just like all or most of the So they return to these temporary wetlands to breed Um, they're obligated to do so meaning that they will not breed in in anything else Um, it is believed that the frosted flatwood salamander exhibits site fidelity meaning it will return to the same puddle that it was born in uh, year after year to breed. That's been um, documented in other ambistema. And it's probably the case with the frosted flatwoods. And, you know, this is as far as I know, the only ambistema species that is dependent upon fire, um, which is a really neat part of its natural history. Um, It is it it can't exist without uh, without wildfire. Uh, frequent wildfire, meaning that it needs its habitat burned every one to three years. Uh, so that's pretty interesting about the salamanders and that their um, ecology and they have evolved alongside of natural wild wildfire so that they know when to be out of the way of fire and uh, that's a pretty interesting thing uh, about their natural history um, but, and then the last thing is uh, I'll mention is that you know they're um, Really endangered. I mean, this was listed as threatened by the, under the Endangered Species Act in uh, 1999. And then since then, it has declined by 90% and it's considered at imminent risk of extinction. Uh, there are only a few places left on Earth that still have these salamanders, and none of those few places are healthy, robust populations.
0: So how large of an area are we talking about in terms of range where they live now, as opposed to where they were, I should say?
1: Oh, well, well, I'll start with where they were, because it was basically the entire southeastern United States, from South Carolina all the way through Georgia and into Florida. Um, They are gone from South Carolina, most likely. They haven't been detected in that state in 13 years. Uh, There's only one wetland left in the entire state of Georgia, one wetland. Um, And that wetland is not in good shape. Um, You know, so we've been surveying that wetland with our partners uh, since 2012. And so the last two years, we've found no salamanders. And then in Florida, there are two clusters of, of wetlands. One in Apalachicola National Forest, and the other in Saint Marks Wildlife Refuge. Those are both protected habitats, but you know uh, there's still an issue of fire suppression there, um, and so that's not uh, conducive to healthy salamander populations. So it's it's a it's a struggle.
0: I'm curious about Ambystoma because the first thing that comes to mind. After you mentioning this, now that they live in this very very small restricted area, I mean, of course, I'm going to think about the axolotl and how they were basically, you know, rendered functionally extinct from their area that they lived in in Mexico. And I know there's a few other species down there as well. Is there anything about embistoma that makes them particularly fragile, or is this just kind of a coincidence that they're in the same they're in the same genus?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, And um, off the top of my head it seems like the habitats that um salamanders uh, rely on are not particularly valuable to humans uh you know like a swampy depression in the woods you know that's not something that you know people value so most if it was on their property would either fill it in or pave it or make it a permanent pond all three of those options would destroy the habitat for them and <clears throat> my understanding of the axolotl is that they're mostly just you know their their wetlands were used for or um, just you know polluted and uh, so it's it's uh it seems like it's it's instances where humans have other ideas for how best to use the infistema habitat
0: you raise a good point about the um, the ephemeral wetlands and the, the the property I work on. We actually have that in a couple of different spots at different times of the year. We'll have just torrential rains, and it's like you said, it's just a, it's a puddle for maybe a couple of weeks, and then it's gone. But you're right; you wouldn't think that that would be such an important area for an endangered species.
1: Right? Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, these these wetlands, like you know, most people don't even think twice of them, but you know, they're really vital especially when you think about like um, generations of salamanders returning to the same puddle um, you know it's from a conservation standpoint it's very important to protect those <clears throat> but also understanding that these salamanders don't live in those wetlands they they breed in them there are other 50 weeks of the year they're elsewhere and those are habitats that need to be protected as well
0: this may sound like kind of a strange question, but it's something that I've always been curious about. I don't I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, but like you said, obviously they, they don't inhabit these ephemeral wetlands all year. This is something that they'll show up for a very brief period of time. Let's just say that an area like that is just, say during one season it's turned into a parking lot. Will you actually see salamanders return to that site when the normal breeding season comes and just kind of collect there, or do they just like what 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 happens once that site has been removed to the existing salamanders who normally would show up there?
1: Yeah, those are more great questions. Thanks, Dan. The uh you know the uh, evidence that there is um it, you know, if um if a road is built in between their uplands and their wetlands, which happens a lot, then that is an area of high mortality. So you'll find uh, spotted salamanders, for example, just flattened out at that section of the road, because if you do build a road in between their, their, um, upland overwintering habitat and their breeding habitat, then they're forced to cross it uh, twice a year, going to the wetland and coming back. And, you know, it never really works out well for amphibians. Uh, there's other evidence. Um, if you looked around online, there's, um, a developer put in a house that was in the, um, Trajectory of a ringed salamander, Ambystoma annulatum, um, and so the next year for their migration, they all were stuck in someone's stairwell leading down to their basement, and it just didn't—you know—it wasn't there before, and now suddenly there's a huge ringed salamander trap, and their whole basement was flooded with ringed salamanders. Um, you know, so there are example <laughs> examples like that, and there's. Um, an, an example of site fidelity with some conservation um, practitioners out in California who are um, breeding or rearing uh, long-toed salamanders in macrodactylum and These salamanders most likely imprint on their natal wetlands at metamorphosis. Um, these animals were allowed to metamorphose in cattle tanks, and then brought to the wetlands as as young salamanders, and the following year they returned to the cattle tanks instead of to the wetlands where the they were hoping that they would return to. So, um, you know, there's there's something going on there with with how they imprint and in, in the sensitivity to something happening with their migration routes. It's all pretty interesting.
0: That's amazing. I I'd had a conversation with a previous guest about. Um, deposition sites for Ufaga Pomelio. and it's amazing how they have sp- spatial recognition. They know exactly where each little bromeliad leaf is, or in, or in this case, every every um, oh well, cattle tanks, I guess in this case. But it's am- it's amazing how sophisticated they are with things like that. And people just tend to think uh, that they're just so simple.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know we um target the uh, larval stage when we're trying to acclimate well in the example of the frosted flatwood salamander we made sure that these animals metamorphosed in the enclosures that we were hoping that they would breed in uh, so that they would ideally acclimate and recognize that as their natal wetland um, so then when they were older they would successfully reproduce
0: you know, it's funny when we were talking last time, I was thinking about the logistics of how you were able to do this and why it was so difficult. And I mean, now I'm starting to really, really understand why, because the, um, the, the wetlands that they're born in is obviously such a big vital role. Why don't we, I want to get into the whole process. I want you to walk us through the whole story. Why don't we start at the beginning how you, you ended up with a group of these things and what, how you work with them and how you were able to get to where you are today in terms of successfully breeding them in captivity.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I ended up in the southeastern United States. I'm originally from the northeast and uh, always, again, with a, a particular affinity for Ambistema. And uh, was concerned with these flatwood salamanders, um, and looking to potentially um, start a, a conservation program for um, the frosted flatwood salamander, and you know began some discussions with U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, as early as 2012. We were at least starting to talk about this idea um, that it needed to happen. Um, some other organizations had tried and I, and, as far as I know, did not do well with them in captivity, were unable to get them to acclimate to captivity um and so that's that's where kind of things were in two thousand and twelve um in two thousand and fourteen we uh were invited to join what was called at the time as a recovery team a federal recovery team where we were trying to make a plan, not not just make a plan for the flatwood salamanders, both species, but also um, write a recovery plan document. Now this is a, a federal document that has now since been written and is published and anyone can see online. Um, but this recovery team was was put together to develop a plan and publish this plan called the recovery plan. And that that's the point where Um, We were charged with trying to build a captive uh, assurance colony for flatwood salamanders at the time. The goal was to just build a uh, genetic repository for flatwood salamanders because they're, like I had mentioned, they're just declining precipitously in the wild. Um, The thought was that there was maybe five to ten years before they were extinct. And so we wanted to have some being kept alive and safe in captivity and that, you know, that's always like the last resort. And once, you're, once you think the species is gonna be extinct, unless you actually bring them in from the wild, that's, uh, that's very sad, you know, just to throw that out there because that means that lots of other conservation measures or potential conservation measures have failed, um, you know. So when you're safeguarding uh, them from extinction in a lab, which is what we were gonna to try to do, then um, you know, that that's that's pretty bleak. And um, so you know, then the challenge is so in 2014 we started this in earnest. Um, I don't think we found salamanders that year. because we it was 2015 when we got our first salamander. We got four. You know, that's that's not a, 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 a an assurance colony. Um, but then We started getting some specimens from, like I mentioned, there are three localities. We started getting animals from um, Florida, uh, either as larvae or as uh, eggs. So another very peculiar thing about the flatwood salamander is they breed in dry ponds. So they come to the pond. If there's water in it, they're they're not going to breed. They breed in the dry pond and they lay their eggs and then they scoot, they're gone. And the eggs develop and wait there all alone for seasonal rains to come and fill their wetland. And once the uh, water level reaches the eggs, then they hatch. Um, And so, you know, as you can imagine, um, there's the weather patterns have become less and less predictable and the rains are coming and, and less and less their natural periods and more and more these eggs are left in the field to dry they're just drying out the field these endangered salamanders their their eggs you know even if the breeding was successful then the eggs still are just dying out in the field and so some of our partners at florida fish and wildlife um began collecting these eggs and salvaging them and uh, actually head-starting them. Uh, and then a portion of those eggs would come to us where we would lab, we'd hatch them out in the lab and rear them uh, from egg into adult. Uh, so that has, that has been going on since 2015. And in 2017, we started pairing up animals that we thought might be good Um, breeding groups Um, and you know the first strategy that we've tried to breed them was to have them in outdoor artificial wetlands where they would get natural sunshine and um, natural um, hydro periods rain we could make sure their ponds were dry when they should be and full when they should be but other than that they would get rained on and they'd get sun and they'd have temperature fluctuations and um you know natural invertebrates colonizing these mesocosms and so really thought that that would be where we would have success but in, in the vast majority of our captive colony are currently in these outdoor mesocosms but um, interestingly enough that's that's not where uh we we've had success this year we had success with our in um our indoor mesocosms and um and our indoor rain chambers so go figure um you know but we as long as we've had success that's been great you know so these um outdoor mesocosms were fashioned um with the um uh, you know by working with partners you know you know we just didn't pull these out of the air you know we've we crafted these outdoor it's just a six foot 320 gallon cattle tank that we made an upland a wetland and the ecotone for these salamanders so flatwood salamanders breed in uh, the ecotone and if you're unfamiliar with that term that is the graduation between the upland and the wetland and it's very particular and special for the flatwood salamanders and other salamanders too but the ecotone is right where the frosted flatwood salamander lays their eggs. So only a significant amount of water will bring the level up high enough to reach that ecotone so their eggs can hatch. Um, And so, you know, we have these groups out in in mesocosms that we developed with, um, you know, know, just by doing as much research as we could. Um, It's not easy to develop, to design a pond a system to breed pond breeding amphibians that will only breed in dry ponds. That's actually not anything i would ever done before. You know, normally when you're breeding amphibians, you provide water for them to either lay their eggs in or over or near. Um, but not these guys, they need to breed near a dry pond. And so that had to be taken into account. Luckily on our, on this, um, Recovery team we had Ray Semlich, who is was he's uh, late Ray Semlich. He was an amazing salamander biologist who developed this mesocosm uh, system for keeping animals alive. Uh, and we kind of adapted it with from his work and from uh, some other people at Riverbank Zoo, namely Scott Pfaff, who was uh, who had bred other ambistema like spotted and uh, marbles and moles salamanders out in these outdoor enclosures so those are the two people that kind of gave us the courage to build these outdoor uh, experimental wetlands to try to breed this uh, extremely endangered species even though it hasn't been successful yet I still feel like it will be maybe they just need some more time the animals themselves seem to be doing well um, and so you know, we'll focus on trying to get eggs out of those in the in the upcoming years. But you know, now we're now we've had this uh, very recent success with these indoor setups.
0: Yeah, can you walk us through how you have the indoor setups? I I'd recently, it's interesting because I I've, I've kind of followed this from the beginning. Once I kind of you know I became interested in what you guys are doing over there. I know on your social media you had pictures uh, about maybe two years or so back of the outdoor enclosures. And I recently saw a photograph of the indoor enclosures. Can you elaborate on how that worked out and how you have them set up for breeding on the in, uh, on the indoor enclosures?
1: Sure. It would be my pleasure. Um, the indoor enclosures, we have two setups. Um, one is um, what I call the ecotonal rain chamber. So I had already mentioned how vital the ecotone is for the Flatwood salamander. Particularly their reproduction, uh, so we set up these um, these ecotonal rain chambers. It's just providing an approximation of the ecotone. So we ignored the upland habitat and the wetland habitat. Um, that's where we had success this year, um, and so the um, <clears throat> this was. Well, we had uh, some lab-reared animals that were just in, raised individually, have never seen another flatwood salamander in their life, and they, in around October, November this year, or 2021, started showing signs that they were um, ready for reproduction. Males with swollen cloacas, females that were appearing gravid. And so we took these animals that were have uh, been separated since they metamorphosed and put them in together into these ecotonal rain chambers where we rained on them pretty heavy. And then we slowly increased the humidity. And about six weeks later, we had eggs. And so that was extremely exciting. Um, You know, I should mention two years ago, the uh, San Antonio Zoo had successfully bred the reticulated flatwood salamander um a bishop Bishopi, and they had done it um in a similarly sized tank, so a 40-gallon breeder, which is a standard um standard size for breeding salamanders. They had a terrestrial setup for their um for their salamanders, I believe I have never actually seen these, so I'm just kind of making it up. But my understanding is that these were a terrestrial setup. And um and so You know, ours are very similar, 40 gallon breeders, uh, but we had ours set up on a on a slanted gradient to try to mimic the graduation of the ecotone uh, that were layered with plants that we collected with um, Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Went to some breeding habitats and collected some vegetation. So it was really simple in that it was just a planted plank of egg grating with a screen on top with some clumps of native plants on, on top of that. And then a, a, it just rained on them pretty heavy. And then we slowly increased the humidity. They seem to love that. Um, and so we had success with two groups of salamanders in these setups. We only set up two groups. We had success in both groups. Um, the only other thing was that we had also built what i'm calling i don't know i've never seen anything like these so i just call them what i want this is a uh, an indoor mesocosm we also had an 180 gallon tank set up um now unlike the uh ecotonal rain chambers that were just on a plank with uh, some plants on top these were like permanent well planted um huge terrariums 180 gallons is Six feet long, um, with a upland, the wetland, and the ecotone, all the whole system in there, planted with vegetation from the uh, longleaf pine ecosystem, except except for the trees, obviously, and in um, and because it had a wetland, has a wetland in it. I had introduced larvae in there, um, twelve larvae, uh, in the wetland of this indoor mesocosm. So that they could metamorphose in there. And that was in twenty twenty. And the only reason why I mentioned this, and this is kind of breaking news, is that this morning they I found eggs in that indoor mesocosm for the first time. So that's the third group of flatwood salamanders we bred this breeding season. And so that's extremely exciting.
0: That's incredible. I'm just curious, I got a couple of things that kind of came into my head as we were as I was listening to you. When you're originally, you set out to, I guess, engage fish and wildlife. How do you start a conversation like that with them? I mean, is that something where they would approach you or you go before them? Or how does, like, how does something like that start?
1: You know, that's, that's a great question. And um, I think that for the most part, um, it is possible for you, for anyone to find out who the species lead is. Or an endangered species in the United States, and so I believe that's how that happened. Um, <clears throat> the species lead uh, for, and these are just species that are listed under, under the Endangered Species Act. So, um, you know, any species that's listed under that act, you will need to partner with U.S. Fish and Wildlife on any program for, um, and then. The, um, The uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Species Lead was extremely receptive to uh, talking about uh, starting a program uh, because I think it was obvious that, that a program needs to be needed to be started for them. Um, the now, I mean, that that was a long time ago, ten years ago, and now you know we're at a point where we are being approached by U.S. Fish and Wildlife about starting projects and. Uh, new projects and also uh, by the state states are are reaching out to us as well here in Georgia in Alabama in Florida uh, you know it seems like we're uh, providing a much needed uh, service for amphibians and I'm very grateful that there are so many uh, partners who value what it is that we do
0: yeah, I was always curious about it, because that's usually the angle that never really gets discussed is how the whole project gets, I mean, some, someone has to sign a name somewhere to make it, uh, I guess, official. Is this something that, um, like now that you have a, a, I guess, you have a reputation for being able to do this type of work, I mean, as you said, they're going to be approaching you for other ones. Are there any other projects that you're taking on now or looking to take on in the future?
1: um yeah for sure um so we we have you know so we started with the frosted flatwoods for a time that was our only project and that's what our logo is is a larval flatwood salamander Um, but pretty soon after that we were approached about joining a gopher frog um, project so we are still a member of that gopher frog project Um, this year we'll be uh, rearing up um, tadpoles through metamorphosis and then bringing those baby gopher frogs to Alabama to attempt to establish a second breeding population in Alabama. There's currently only one population of gopher frogs left in the entire state. So we're going to work with Alabama and some other partners to try to double that. Um, So that's very exciting. And we uh, also work with the striped newt. So we were invited into that project. Uh, We currently have I just saw them this morning. I think at least 150 baby newts uh, that we bred in our newt lab there. And so those are all going to be released into the wild. Um, And then more recently, um, pigeon mountain salamanders, which is a beautiful species of salamander that only lives in Georgia. Um, If your listeners are online, Google pigeon mountain salamander and just see how beautiful they are. They live on one side of one mountain in the state. Um, so their very narrow range makes them susceptible to things like B-sal or BD or other catrids or emergent infectious diseases. And um, then uh, in New York State, we were invited to join a project uh, on the true blue-spotted salamander. Um, so we're just uh, less than a year into that project to try to figure out how to produce um, blue-spotted salamanders in captivity for experimental release. And then more, you know just keep going. And then more recently, Alabama's reached out to us about at least potentially starting um, a, a project for another federally listed species with possibly the most cool common name, the Black Warrior water dog.
0: <laughs> that sounds amazing. Does it look as great as it sounds? <laughs>
1: They do, you know, so this is another necturus, you know, like the mud puppy. Uh, But this one is actually really humming. They're not, they uh, don't have much habitat left. Um, So, you know, it's going to be another try to stop them from going extinct type of situation.
0: I mean, with a name like that, I can't see that being anything but good PR. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So here's, I guess, the, the million dollar question. So assuming you've got flatwoods, uh, frosted flatwood salamanders to breed successfully in captivity, you've gotten, I guess, the, I guess you call it the recipe. Now, how do you get them to, I guess, establish themselves in the wild where they would find a location, breed in that location, and then, you know, go about their normal life for the rest of the year since they've been bred in this one indoor, I guess, you know, semi-artificial location. How do you look at that being, how do you, how do you figure out a solution to that problem?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. It's a very complicated problem. Um, Luckily we're part of this team that is trying to address all these different aspects of the problem. The, The success that we've had is, is great. I don't want to belittle it, but there's still so much, that needs to get accomplished. So what we are focused on is, um, well, once we've had this success and then over the last couple of weeks, we've formed this um, Frosted Flatwood Salamander Conservation Breeding Working Group. It's a mouthful, but we've, um, over the over the last years, have, I've identified partners and uh, other institutions that were interested in helping with this project. So. We're not starting from square one, but we have about a half dozen institutions, mostly zoos, that want to rear up these salamanders. Um, And now that we've had the success, it's taken us about two and a half years to raise them from egg to breeding adult. And so if we can get as many institutions as possible up and running this year, then in two and a half years, I know it takes a lot of patience then hopefully we'll get close to our goals, which are our conservation goals, as we outlined in the initial 2014 meeting, was that we would be able to produce close to 3,000 frosted flatwood salamanders each year. So when when you're thinking about this in terms of trying to actually get them back out into the landscape, and we have partners out there killing themselves to restore habitat, to make sure that the restored habitat is properly managed, meaning for the most part, properly burned. Um, and so these there are a few locations where that is happening, where habitat is returning to its natural state. And so when we have our goal of 2,800 or 3,000 flatwood salamander larvae to put out there, then potentially we could actually make a big difference. Um, We've established spotted salamanders with 30 larvae, you know, um, starting with 30 larvae, and uh, have had some of those reach adulthood and actually return to breed. And we've started two new populations of spotted salamanders in metro Atlanta with very few animals. So, hopefully, for a species as sensitive as the frosted flywood salamander we'll have luck by releasing huge numbers of animals at strategic locations into restored and managed habitat that's going to be monitored regularly as well. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, it does. It it answers it very well. What about um, maintaining, um, I guess, the genetic diversity? Because this is always one of those questions that people often ask is, when you're working with a species whose population is so limited, in the long term, is it going to be, I guess, um, I guess, genetically viable enough from the population that you're starting with to perpetuate, I guess, to infinity, I guess, if that's possible? Do, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, sure, I do. Um, and, and luckily, there are some very talented and passionate geneticists on our team. Uh, and we're addressing those, um, those types of questions right now. We are still re- rearing these as separate groups, and um, there may come a time where we crossbreed these groups, uh, but that'll be done deliberately um, and under the guidance of the geneticists on our recovery team, um, and so I'm lucky I don't have to make those types of decisions, um, and I'm also lucky that I personally don't have to be an expert in answering those very genetical questions, um, if you know if that makes any sense. So, there is evidence that because the populations have been declining for so long that that is having a very negative effect on on their on them genetically, and that it probably would benefit the species if we were cross crossbred them. Uh, but again, right now we're 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 going to make sure that we've made that right decision because at some point we might not have that luxury. There are so few animals left. And then you get into the position where, well, do you want to have a flatwood salamander there? Or does it have to be uh, a Florida locale flatwood salamander back in Florida? Or do you just want to have a flatwood salamander
0: there? Yeah. It's a shame that we've come to this point where we have to make those kinds of decisions, you know, like, <laughs> yes, like all it's, it's, it's either all or nothing, I guess, in some situations pra- practic- practical question when you started off harvesting you started you started harvesting eggs right from the from the natural look uh the natural locale mostly
1: but sometimes we do go sampling for larvae with uh, dip nets
0: okay my question is how do you differentiate between frosted flatwood salamander eggs and larvae and other species because I mean, me, I, I know when I look at my dart frog eggs, I mean, I, I know which ones are which because they come out in different tanks. But, I mean, by and large, you put you put one petri dish of tinctorious eggs next to like, a, you know, terrabilis. They look very, very similar. So how do you make the distinction if you're out in the field between frosted flatwood salamander and say like a similar species or any species of salamander for that matter?
1: You know, that's a great question too luckily you know and, and interestingly enough the flatwood salamander eggs um, if you look at the pictures that got posted uh, with the press release their eggs look very similar to both Tinctorius and terramellus. so um, but those are the only eggs that you would find not in wetland in the water uh, at that time of year so if you are out there and you find ter- like if you were out in the Florida swamp and uh, looking around the edges of a pool that had was still dry, and you found what looked to be terrabillus eggs. Those would be uh, flatwood salamander eggs right there, you know. And that's that's for the eggs. The larvae are insane looking and don't look like anything else. in they're um, very bold, broad stripes. Very bold, broad stripes. Nothing else even comes close to looking like that. So you'll know uh, immediately if you get them in your net because they do share wetlands with some other ambistema. Uh, uh, Sometimes you might see mole salamanders or marbles or even tiger salamander larvae. Um, But these flatwood salamanders don't look anything like them because of their stripes. So thank goodness for that.
0: When you're raising the larvae, what sort of diet do they, are they eating? Like, how do you essentially how do you how do you raise them once they once they're in their larval form until they're until they're uh, ready to come out of the water?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Well, when, when when they first hatch, they're pretty small, not as small as some other things, um, and so we feed them primarily daphnia. Um, you, know, you know, salamander larvae will really only when they when they hatch will really need to see things move to get their attention. So even though some salamander larvae, when they get older, will will eat things like frozen bloodworms or whatever, you know, not when they're young. So we give them Daphnia. Uh, Once they have their first few meals and start growing a little bit, then we can start introducing worms, um, mostly chopped small worms like black worms and white worms. Um, But... For us, a lot of the goal is to get them to the size where they can start eating whole worms because that's when they really put on weight and the thing that I love about feeding them things like black worms and white worms and young um, drift worms are that they will eat those through metamorphosis and even into their adult forms. They'll still continue to eat those things. So it's nice to get them in on those types of very nutritious uh, prey items that they'll end up eating for, for their whole lives.
0: Interesting. What does, um like, what would you say the biggest challenge of this whole thing has been so far? Cause obviously it, it hasn't been easy really at, at any point, but, what was the moment where you said to yourself, "Like this is this is really hard"? Like, what's what was the biggest challenge overcoming it? <laughs> I know it's kind of a broad question, oh my but God.
1: the whole thing is has been really hard. I mean, the the, um, the 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 bureaucracy, like our the recovery lead for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, is amazing and supportive and loves the salamanders. There's a lot of Bureaucratic things are beyond his control about working with the government. For example, I applied for a permit years ago and I still haven't haven't gotten it. You know, I was just stuck in some red tape hell Uh, and, you know, super challenging getting permission to do this project and then not being able to find animals anywhere because they're just going extinct too quickly and also, you know, not having a lot of information to... Base our strategy on. You know, so there, there's the San Antonio Zoo, who is doing very similar things for Bishop I. So there's a nice exchange of information there. Uh, but you know, for the most part, they're figuring it out for the first time themselves. Um, very little that I had learned from my experience with other ambistema can be applied directly to the frosted flywood salamander. So that's challenging, you know, so basically it's been um, a lot of stress and anxiety up until, you know, this successful breeding very recently, you know, it's just very bleak because, you know, the, even the recovery plan really relies heavily on, uh, a successful captive propagation program. So, you know, it's possible for someone to think that, this species is going to go extinct if we're not successful with breeding it. And that's just a a lot of, a lot of pressure. And so, you know, there's a huge sigh of relief, not just from us, but from all of our partners who have a lot of emotion and time spent invested in this success of this project.
0: Well, my, my last question is, and I want to thank you for walking us through this whole thing. I, it was, it was really interesting my last question is, though, is where do you see the project five years or, or 10 years from now? Of course, assuming everything goes according to plan, where, where do you see it in the next uh, few years?
1: Yeah, great. I, I like thinking about this part because, you know, we're making uh, plans for uh, exporting this to other institutions. And so, you know, I, I see, you know, this... This working group I I described earlier is just a couple of weeks old. So I I, um, think about that as a group of tight knit, passionate people all working towards a common goal of producing a lot of healthy flatwood salamanders. I think that, you know, with all these partners as well working on it, with uh, um, the recipe, as you called it earlier, will get improved greatly. I think that, you know, it's going to get a lot better. We're going to get our handle on how to produce the healthiest larvae possible, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to answer a lot of these questions. And then just hopefully, you know, you said in like five years, you know, this might be how long it takes to get to the point where we're producing thousands of flatwood salamanders each year. I mean, that that would be a huge success. I mean, for me, you know, this this was really great breeding the species and, and having uh, lab filled with our own babies, but actually releasing them into the wild is going to be uh, even more exciting. And, you know, we're not going to do that this year. Um, that's not going to happen for several more years.
0: I look forward to seeing it. I'm just, I'm really happy for you. This went out because I, I've been kind of following this myself over the past couple of years. And when you mentioned it to me, about a month ago when we, we we talked beforehand i was like wow this is this is great we got we definitely have to talk about this
1: oh wow. Well, appreciate your interest in the project thank
0: you so much oh it's an it's an interesting project and and the thing that really struck me the most about it was really like you said just how complicated it was because it's not like i mean you get i guess people like to compare apples and or well people like to compare apples and oranges as if they were the same thing but I mean, you think about a species like the axolotl, which is, you know, is an ambistema. It's completely extinct in the wild, but they breed, you know, you, you, you put two of them, you could draw a picture of two of them together and the, the picture the picture will have babies. But it's, it's, yeah. I never would have thought that something that is so similar can be so incredibly different and so incredibly challenging to get to reproduce for all these reasons that I never would have been aware of. I mean, that that to me, that was what was most fascinating about the project.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, it's entirely possible that someone else could have could have done it sooner. And, you know, and it's interesting to me that, you know, we've had success with animals that were relatively young. We've we have older animals than the ones that bred, uh, but it takes as long as it takes, I guess.
0: Well, at least hey, look, it's it's just, it's a great step in the right direction. Well, Mark, I just want to just, again, I know we, we talked last episode, but um, if you want to just mention to everyone how they can find out more, and uh, I know you've got some more classes that are coming up for the Master Herpetologist course, and there's a couple of other courses. Do you want to just give everyone just a quick rundown of uh, how they can find you, and if they're interested in taking any of those classes?
1: Well, yeah, sure. Um, thanks. And so, well, our main website, amphibianfoundation.org, is a hub for all that types of information and um, we do offer a lot of classes for for all ages really so um most of the adult programs I teach or co-teach and you can find those on our website master herpetologist class is probably our most popular but we are also uh, about to start our husbandry and captive management class and that starts next month in March and so that'll be a lot of fun too and so you can see all of the different things that we do and offer on our website or follow us on social media.
0: Great stuff. All right, everyone, I want to thank Mark for coming back. It's It's been a real pleasure, and I'm really glad we got the chance to discuss the whole Frosted Flatwood Salamander project. And it's nice, you know, every so often to just hear a little good news that uh, a species that was really borderline on you know on the edge of becoming extinct has been uh, brought back and given new hope so um yeah it was you know always always enjoy stuff like this always learn a lot now you guys know that i say that every time but uh, i mean it so again i want to thank mark for coming on it was great having him back and uh hope you guys enjoyed the salamander content again we're going to be exploring the topic more in the upcoming episodes and other than that i hope you guys enjoyed it as usual catch up with you all again soon